This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about an amazing development at a small liberal arts college in Southern California. Pitzer College is inaugurating a new department, the Department of Secular Studies. Classes taught by professors from the other departments of the college include God, Darwin, and Design in America, Anxiety in the Age of Reason, and the Bible is Literature. This new department at Pitzer College in Southern California is based on the premise that studying non-belief is as valid as studying belief. Among other things, this department will also study the growing waves of secularization in Western Europe and in Canada. The head of this academic department is Phil Zuckerman, a sociologist of religion, who describes himself as culturally Jewish but agnostic atheist on questions of deep mystery. That's a quote from him. In his book, Culture Wars, sociologist James Davison Hunter argues that American culture is experiencing a crisis of moral authority. One side of the cultural cleavage, the progressive side, claims that individual self is the source of moral authority, while the other side, the orthodox, claims that something transcendent, that which is beyond the physical, is the source of moral authority. This struggle to define America's cultural center informs the debates over abortion, euthanasia, sexuality issues, education, law, and the role of government in our lives. It is indeed a battle for the future of America. The progressive side of this cleavage argues from a naturalist perspective. There is an inherent anti-supernaturalism in this position. For most people committed to modern thinking, physical matter is all there is. God does not exist, and religion is irrelevant. As religion fades, the progressive hopes peace and harmony will reign. That sentiment is perhaps best captured in John Lennon's song, Imagine. I'm going to repeat the lyrics of Lennon's very famous song. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. That, the lyrics of that song by John Lennon, Imagine, and this conflict within American culture between progressive and orthodox is what that Department of Secular Studies is all about. It will champion a worldview, a progressive worldview, a worldview that captures what Lenin's talking about in that song, that the physical world is all there is, that non-belief is equal to belief. There is no difference. 
as Christians then, how should we respond to a college that's going to offer a curriculum that focuses on secularism as an academic major? What could we offer? What bridges could we build to someone who believes that is worthy? In my book on comparative worldviews, I suggest three basic bridges we can build to the secularist, to the naturalist, and I'd like to summarize those here. Bridge number one, secularism affirms the value of human life and sees human happiness as its core value. This meshes with biblical Christianity, which also affirms the value of human life. However, secularism has no basis for its claim for the value of human life, for helping people, or for showing compassion. Why engage in such things if humans are simply the product of chance? Biblical Christianity affirms the value of life because humans bear God's image. It provides the reason for compassion, care, and concern that's missing in secularism. Secularism is most vulnerable on this point, and we must lovingly press it. Bridge number two. Secularism claims that in terms of religious beliefs and ethical standards, it is impossible to have absolutes. In other words, there are absolutely no absolutes. In making such a claim, it affirms, therefore, something absolute. That is a glaring inconsistency, and as Christians, we can point this out. Christians can press secularism to seriously reflect on the inadequacy of standards for truth and, and ethics. Are secularists willing to bank everything on there not being a God? What if there is? What if there is accountability? The Holy Spirit of God can use this inconsistency within secularism to bring conviction. Finally, bridge number three, perhaps the most powerful and penetrating. Secularism teaches that at death there is extinction. Therefore, there is no hope of ever seeing loved ones again. Ultimately, there is no hope, for secularism provides no real incentive for living or for dying. This physical world is all there is, they argue, and we must live that way for the moment. If there is no death, then there's no accountability and no motivation for virtue or goodness if there is no life after death. Most people cannot live with that kind of teaching. Here is where biblical Christianity can be so compelling. It offers hope because there is life after death. There is hope of seeing loved ones and friends. Christianity also offers the certainty of salvation, which guarantees heaven and eternal life with God. Secularism offers no counsel to a family who has lost an infant in death or to someone with terminal illness, or to a wife who lost her husband in an automobile accident. The seculars can offer nothing. Christianity offers everything. It is in the real world of life that secularism's bankruptcy becomes evident, it seems to me. Naturalism, secularism pervade Western civilization and are currently institutionalized in the academic centers of the West. It remains powerful and influential and informs so much of modern education. It will retain its importance only as long as the West sees its purpose and its meaning from technology, science, and reason. Its anti-supernaturalism is difficult for most people. However, 
because the average person cannot live without some sense that there is a transcendent realm, that there is something beyond death, that the physical world is not all there is. They are the powerful elements of biblical Christianity. And only genuine biblical Christianity answers life's quest for meaning and for purpose. Quite frankly, I was saddened that Pitzer College, the small liberal arts college in Southern California, is offering an academic major in secularism. They have the freedom to do that, but what in the world will they teach when it comes to ethics? What in the world will they teach when it comes to what makes life valuable? Why is a human being of infinite worth and value? If they're intellectually honest, secularism has no answer to those questions. Only biblical Christianity does. In our second perspective on the program today, let me think with you about the new Middle East, something we've been processing now for a number of months. But with the death of Osama bin Laden and what some are calling the Arab Spring, this breaking out throughout all of the nations like Tunisia and Egypt and Syria and others for democratic freedom, or at least some form of democratic freedom, this Arab Spring, a new Middle East is emerging. Its parameters are far from clear, but there are some discernible characteristics, and in my view, most of them are rather troublesome. First of all, the demonstrations that have swept most parts of the region at first were energized by opposition to corruption and repression. With unemployment rates so high in many of these nations, a real sense of frustration with authoritarian governments was real and has played a major role. But in a sense, these movements have been about justice and democracy and modernity. Such sentiments contradict the goals of bin Laden and al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda envisions the return of the Islamic Caliphate, not embracing the West and its values. The so-called Arab Spring is a repudiation of everything bin Laden and al-Qaeda preached and represented. No one in Liberation Square in Cairo was yelling death to America. The Arab Spring has simply overwhelmed the jihadists of al-Qaeda. Yet, the Arab Spring that swept Hosni Mubarak from power has not been replaced by an encouraging state in Egypt, at least so far. The caretaker government, which is largely the military, has already made some radical shifts in foreign policy. It has extended a strong hand to Iran. An Iranian destroyer, for example, was allowed to pass through the Suez Canal for the first time since 1979. This new uh, caretaker government has also fostered a unity agreement between the two rival factions of the Palestinians, Fatah and Hamas, a renowned terrorist group. More about that later. Both of these developments are not good news for Israel, nor for the United States. Second, what exactly did bin Laden's vision of a radical, almost medieval caliphate fail? Why did that not make it? Rule Mark Gerecht, a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy, writes that bin Laden was undone by his love of violence. He pushed it too far. Slaughtering innocent Africans in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998 was tolerable since the targets were American embassies. Killing American soldiers on the USS Cole in the port of Aden was praiseworthy since no modern Muslim power had ever so humbled an American ship. And destroying the Twin Towers in New York City and punching a hole in the Pentagon building was just astonishing. But then, 
Then came the slaughter that could not be ignored. As Al-Qaeda affiliates started killing Muslims in Muslim lands, the suicide bombers who hit Casablanca in 2003 in Amman in 2005 made an impact. But it is the war in Iraq where bin Laden's greatest moral undoing occurred. The carnage there, carried on in all its gore by Arab satellite channels, produced a backlash. After all, there was a limit to the number of Shiite women and children that Sunni Arabs could see murdered. Blowing up hospitals, mosques, and shrines, even Shiite shrines, became too ghastly to sublimate into an acceptable war against America. Are we finally approaching a point where Islam is constructing a moral, ethical universe in which militants, Islamic jihadists, can no longer continually call upon Islamic history to justify their actions and their rebellion? Is the dream of a caliphate enforced by militant Islam a dead vision? In my opinion, it's still too early to reach that conclusion. But with bin Laden dead, the authoritarian regimes of the Middle East in flux, and Iran's influence in ascendance, there's a real possibility that a new Middle East is being born. Only God knows whether that indeed is an accurate projection. One thing I do know, the new Middle East is not a positive development for Israel. And that leads me to this final part of the second perspective, some thoughts about what's happening between Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas. This new interim government agreement, and it's very loose and very much just a framework between Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas, that was brokered by Egypt is, in my opinion, not good news for Israel. I was quite amazed by an op-ed piece in the Washington Post by Jimmy Carter. Carter argued that support for the interim government, Hamas, Fatah, is critical, and the United States should take the lead, he says. This accord should be viewed as a Palestinian contribution to the Arab awakening. Folks, I could not disagree more. The major issue in this agreement between Hamas and Fatah is that Hamas still affirms its charter, which calls for Israel's destruction. In all discussions about peace in the Middle East, whether brokered by the United States or the so-called Quartet, which is the United States, UN, Russia, and the European Union, the conditions have always been that Hamas must recognize Israel. It must accept agreements with Israel and renounce violence if it's to be a partner for these negotiations. Hamas still refuses to meet these conditions, and even in the agreement with Fatah has reaffirmed that refusal. This new agreement provides for the establishment of a government of technocrats that will prepare for the parliamentary and presidential elections in a year, in 2012, and work for the reconstruction of the Gaza Strip. This accord also calls for elections to the Palestinian Liberation Organization and the formation of a joint security committee between Fatah and Hamas. The thorniest and most difficult detail of the accord yet to be decided is the platform of this new Palestinian government. Will this new platform conform more to Mahmoud Abbas, head of Fatah, and his renunciation of violence, or will it adhere to Hamas and its terrorist agenda? Why would the world community expect Israel 
to negotiate with this new entity when a major part of this new entity refuses even to recognize the right of Israel to exist. Indeed, I was traveling in Oregon this last weekend, and I read a piece in which the head of Hamas, giving a speech in Gaza, said, the days of the Zionist experiment in Palestine are almost over. Now that is an incendiary comment headed by Hamas, which says the days of the state of Israel as an independent, sovereign nation state of Jewish people is almost over. Why would you negotiate with someone who makes a speech like that? On the surface, this agreement seems impossible and absurd. But this is a part of the new Middle East. It is confusing. It's difficult. We don't know where this is going to end up. Only our Lord knows the future. He has sketched out a basic framework in the last chapters of Daniel and in parts of the book of Revelation that help us to understand that the Middle East will be the focus of events at the end time. And no matter what is happening in other parts of the world, no matter what disasters there are, no matter what is happening in China, our focus keeps coming back to the Middle East. And I think that, of course, is by design. As we approach the end of history, and I am not in any way predicting anything about the end, our focus in the Middle East will continue to be clear. God seems to be drawing our attention again and again and again to what is happening in that small, tiny strip of land about the size of New Jersey called modern Israel. Its challenges are intractable. It doesn't seem like compromise is possible. And the sides seem to be hardening, not open to greater compromise. The Middle East is the focal point of where God is working most intensely and most clearly. We are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but keep our focus on what God is doing. That is the main lesson we learn from a study of God's Word. In our third and final perspective on the program, I'd like to return to a theme that we've developed over the last couple of years about education. It is the appeal of vouchers, school vouchers. There's growing evidence that that does work in improving the quality of education for our children. The present administration in Washington is against school vouchers and even permitted very popular and demonstrably effective voucher programs like the one in the District of Columbia to die. President Obama only resurrected that popular District of Columbia program as a part of a deal he struck with the Republican Party over the budget for 2011. What evidence is there that vouchers serve students well and give parents a valid option for educating their children? Now remember, a voucher is essentially where the government gives parents a block of money and allows them to spend it in a series of options in faith-based or perhaps non-faith-based schools where the rates of success are much higher. It allows and empowers parents to make the decision where they're going to educate their children. There are a cluster of pieces of evidence that are indicating more and more that vouchers work. In the District of Columbia, that very popular program that I mentioned a moment ago, voucher recipients who number more than 3,300 in the District of Columbia made gains in reading scores much, much higher 
than what they had been. A University of Arkansas study demonstrated that the District of Columbia voucher recipients had graduation rates of 91%, much higher than the D.C. public average of 56%. This is especially important for us as we think about public policy because high school dropouts are eight times more likely to end up in prison. Since 60% of black high school dropouts in their 30s have prison records, and nearly one in four young black male dropouts is either in jail or in juvenile detention. There is a connection between finishing school and success and not finishing school and crime. A recent study of Milwaukee's older and larger voucher program found that 94% of students who stayed in the program throughout high school graduated versus 75% in traditional public schools. Vouchers foster healthy competition, and I think that is a positive. I think that helps public schools to become better. They're forced to because parents will not choose to send their kids there. Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal reports, every empirical study ever conducted in Milwaukee, Florida, Ohio, Texas, Maine, and Vermont finds that voucher programs in those places improved public schools. Dear people, this is brief, but this is compelling. Vouchers give parents and their children an option for a quality education, and the evidence that I briefly summarized above shows that very truth. Why would those who make public policy not support vouchers on an even more widespread basis? Dear people, the only answer to that question is politics. The National Education Association and other teacher unions do not support vouchers, and they raise a lot of money, and a lot of votes are at stake, especially for this current administration. That is not leadership that benefits our children. That is raw politics that only benefits one group, a group of union employees. And dear people, that is not good public policy. The evidence for vouchers is absolutely compelling. It is a good option. It is an effective option. It is an efficient option. And it forces competition into the public education system. And like anything in life, when there is competition, healthy competition, Things improve or they go out of existence. And I think it is time for the nation and the public policy that is a result of our leaders considering how best to educate our children. Vouchers become a viable, workable solution. And the evidence is compelling. We really do not need to do any more studies. Vouchers are a good option. They improve graduation rates and they create healthy competition with the public school system. How anyone can say that is not good for our nation is being intellectually dishonest. It is time for our president, it is time for the Department of Education, Arne Duncan, and many others to say and to champion vouchers as an option that helps build healthy competition, improves graduation rates, improves reading scores, and gives our children and empowers their parents to make wiser decisions when it comes to educating their children. It is time for the United States of America to see vouchers as a healthy option as we empower parents in deciding how they want to educate their kids. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.